If you want to connect with the people you work with and for, you first have to understand them. And in order to do that effectively, you must understand yourself. This is a quote from my guest today, Michael Ventura. He is the CEO and founder of Subrosa, a strategy and design firm that has worked with names like Johnson & Johnson, Pantone, Adobe, the TED Conference, Delta Airlines, The Daily Show, and that's not even the, all of them. But Michael has served as a board member, also an advisor to a variety of organizations, including Behance, the Burning Man Project, Cooper Hewitt, and the UN's Tribal Link Foundation. He lectures at institutions like Princeton and the United States Military Academy at West Point. But get this, Michael also somehow has time for a thriving indigenous medicine practice where he helps patients address illness and injury of all types on the road to better well-being. I'm actually here talking to him about his first book, Applied Empathy, which was published by Simon & Schuster just over a year ago, but I just recently got my hands on it. And if you're wondering after hearing this guy's bio, how on earth is he doing all of this? The answers are in the book. I am thrilled to bring you this conversation because applied empathy and this message about empathy isn't just for designers that work with big brands. It's for anyone solving problems involving other humans, which is all of us. And whether you're a stay-at-home mom or dad or the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, these ideas are going to be potentially life-changing, if not super useful. I dug this book from the get-go because I have been calling my approach to presentation planning audience empathy <laughs> for the past 15 years. So I felt like I had found a kindred spirit in Michael, and it was really thrilling to get to talk to him after spending time with his book. And the scale at which Michael and his team at Subrosa are executing these ideas based in deep empathy, it's pretty massive. Brands like Nike and GE bring his applied empathy process to life in this book and the stories he tells. And you'll hear more about this during our conversation. But for now, just settle in, relax, and get ready to be inspired. Here is my conversation with Michael Ventura. So I'm going to dive in and I got to tell you, I loved, I loved Applied Empathy. Oh, thanks. That's great to hear. I kept reading it thinking, you know, he could have kept this stuff all trade secrets and just laughed all the way <laughs> to the bank. You know what I mean? Why did you write this book and expose so much of your own, your company, Sub Rosa's own process? There's an altruistic and there's a selfish reason for that. Mm -hmm. The altruistic one is that why shouldn't more companies be empathic? And even within our industry and our own uh, competitive set, if more companies act and operate this way, the world will be a better place. So I don't think that we should put that behind closed doors and make it a special sauce and a special recipe. That said, the commercial decision to do it was also because, frankly, we wanted to be synonymous with this. Yeah. And had this been kept under lock and key, only the clients that we have the good fortune of working with would have known that. And now instead, we are often said in the same breath. And that's for us really important. That's brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, those little companies you work with like Nike, you know, no big deal. <laughs> so one of the things I absolutely loved about it is, you know, in my work as a communication coach, I help people give TED Talks or the range of stuff that I help people communicate inside of, right? 
very, very similar approaches. And I noticed, you know, one of the things that I do as a coach is try and get my clients to come to a brainstorm with a neutral mind, right? In Kundalini Yoga, they talk about a positive mind, a negative mind, and a neutral mind. And I kept thinking about how your process sort of by nature drops people into that zone of neutrality, that dropping of judgment and that willingness to just perceive clearly. How do you get that to happen at work? And especially in a client services business where titles are important, people are are triggered by hierarchy. How do you get everybody to come into a room and really lose all that and be willing to dive into this empathic state? So I think it's important that when people come in, they are aware of, we don't want them to lose it entirely, right? I think everyone brings something valuable to the room by being who they are. But what we want them to do is be comfortable enough leaving that on the table for a moment when you need to take someone else's perspective or go into a different frame of mind in order to get to the right solution. And that muscle that you train which is a form of cognitive empathy, it requires the neutrality to recognize your own bias and not judge yourself for it or not get hung up on it and instead be able to just step outside of it and not just project into the mind of another person because that is just giving your ego a boost and assuming you know best, right? What you really need to do is ask the questions and be willing to have hard and uncomfortable conversations and take 15 minutes longer than you want to take sometimes because that is where the rubber meets the road with empathy. Oh, that's right. And and I want to ask you next about empathy archetypes. Before I do that, one of the obstacles I often find with people when I'm working with them is I've called my process audience empathy for the past 15 years. <laughs> is that funny? That's amazing. And one of the things I teach them is my own process for audience empathy, but they always say, but Bronwyn, I only have 15 minutes to prep and I'm talking to NPR, you know, in 15 minutes, I don't have time for this. And my feeling is like, no, it's like an accordion. You can practice empathy in 30 seconds. You can take five days to do it. How do you get people to see that this isn't an onerous, heavy burden to take on and those extra 15 minutes are worth it? How do you have time conversation? I think that what people realize the most is that in the long tail of this, it's so beneficial. The, taking the long view of using empathy gives so much back to the process and to the experience. Mm. So what we try to do is help people realize that in the short run, you will be uncomfortable. You will be frustrated. You'll probably say, screw that guy, Michael. I don't want to do what he told me to do. But if you invest in it now and you build the muscle, because I do believe this is a muscle you train, it's not a gift you get. And Mm -hmm. so by training this muscle, you know, like with any muscle or any sport or any exercise, the more you do it, the easier it becomes, the more second nature it becomes. And then it's not such an onerous task. Yeah. Yeah. It just becomes part. It's like breathing at a certain point, right? Yeah. That's exactly right. So tell me about the empathy archetypes. I'm a huge fan of Carl Jung. I love, love this stuff. So when I saw that the archetypes were part of your process and that you designed them with the tarot in mind, I was like, my little new age heart was exploding. (laughs) So first of all, describe the archetypes if you don't mind and tell me how you want people to use them or think about them in the context of process. So... Unlike a Myers-Briggs or a StrengthsFinder or a DISC assessment or any of those sorts of things where you're going to be diagnosed by taking this test and you know you are an ENFP or whatever it is, 
this is different. So with the archetypes, what we're trying to do is create comfort across all seven so that you become more deft and more capable of calling upon different archetypes when the circumstances require it. And so each of these are different ways of eliciting understanding, different ways mm -hmm. of showing up in the world that help you get connected to someone else. So I'll run through them quickly. The sage, the behavior of the sage is about signaling presence and valuing the wisdom that's occurring in the moment with someone, right? So mm -hmm. a lot of people just don't feel like the people they're talking to are present, right? We're on our devices, we're distracted, we're coming from one thing, going to another thing. I've only got 10 minutes, make it quick, make it good, you know, kind of stuff. If you can slow time down a little bit and actually signal, hey, I'm here to have this conversation and I want to know what's on your mind. Sometimes that's all it takes to get people to share that deeper insight that really helps you understand them. So the sage is about signaling presence. Mm -hmm. The convener hosts, they hold space. They know how to create the environment that people feel comfortable. They know the lighting needs to be a certain way or the temperature, or we should meet outside today versus inside, or let's take a walk or meet me in the park or whatever it is. They, they know set and setting plays a huge role in building the comfort for understanding to occur. Mm -hmm. The seeker is daring, they're confident, they're unafraid, they take risks, they pivot. They know what it feels like to come up to the edge of making an uncomfortable decision and what it takes to take that next step into the decision and, and to move past the threshold, if you will. And they know how to do that for themselves and they know how to do that with other people. Mm -hmm. The alchemist is an experimenter. They're a prototyper. They like to break and make and break and make. And that's how they learn. They learn through that process of, of failure and recovery. And that process, they can take other people on that journey with them or they can observe people in that way through testing and learning to help gain understanding about their behaviors. The confidant is a great listener. They're an active listener. They're not listening, planning what they want to say. They're listening to genuinely hear people. And when people sense that, they know that they're in a trusted and safe space to share. The inquirer is a great question asker. They know how to ask the question that really unlocks a deeper truth, a more meaningful thing, a deeper set of insights. And lastly, the cultivator is a big picture person. They know where we're going on the horizon. They know that this is going to take time. They know all of those the long view insights, and they can pull those into the now to help use that to understand the problems that we're facing today, what we are going to have to overcome in order to get to the next place. So all seven of those are ways of showing up in the world. And mm -hmm. are there eight or nine or 10 perhaps, right? Like I don't think seven is like the be all end all, but in the research we did and in the thinking that we put around this, the set of seven really seemed to be the most ubiquitous or the ones we kept coming back to and the ones that were mutually exclusive of each other. And so we built this out this way so that people know everyone, I'm sure as I went through those, there are some that rung true for you who, mm -hmm. and you said, like, oh yeah, I'm definitely this and this and this. I've got that mm -hmm. in spades. And there's probably a couple that, that are not as comfortable. That's okay. And that's very normal. What we want to do is get those uncomfortable ones dialed up even further so that they can be more accessible to you. But also knowing your strengths are super important because you mm -hmm. know how to play to them and you know how to do work with them. I love that. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind, one of my favorite, favorite parts of the book was when you were describing how these archetypes are actually applied in the context of solving a problem. And my favorite problem in the whole book is the Nike running shoe problem. I had the huge mm. smile on my face reading <laughs> about that experience you created. Do you mind just telling us that story and how these archetypes helped inform that execution? It was just so cool. 
Yeah, for sure. Happy to. I'm glad it made you smile. So the brief for that was that they were launching this new shoe that had years and millions of dollars of research that went into it. And it was essentially a sole of a shoe that was designed to allow you to feel the sole of your foot like the palm of your hand. Super responsive, super sensorial. And they realized that while that technology is critical for professional athletes because the micron of difference in your pronation could be the difference between a gold and a silver in a hundred meter dash or something yeah, like yeah. that. It for amateur or casual athletes is a hard value proposition. It launches more questions than answers. It's like, well, why would I want to feel the sole of my foot like the palm? Right. Is that going to be painful? And like, what yeah. if I step on a rock? You know, and like, it just, <laughs> and so they said, look, this technology is really great, but we need to figure out a way to convey the values of it to someone without coming along with all the baggage of these questions that seem to emerge. And so we built a 4,000 square foot pitch black box. And we said, what we need to do is to get people to appreciate what the sole of their foot actually does in order to appreciate what the shoe is a proxy for. And so Mm. this isn't about talking about the shoe. In fact, when you get to this box, we're going to tell you to take your shoes off and we're not going to give you a new pair of shoes. And you're going to walk barefoot through this pitch black labyrinth for about 15 minutes. And the only way you will get from point A to point B is if you let your feet be your eyes and that you will be guided on the floor by a series of different textures. So as the floor changes, from rubber to asphalt to grass to what have you, you'll know you're on the right path. In addition, we put a brain sensor on people's heads that was attached to an iPhone on their arm, and we were tracking their neurological behavior as they went through this experience. And what's amazing, first of all, is that people let you do this stuff, right? That like, like, that, like some random stranger shows up at a thing in New York City, and they're told, take your shoes off, walk in a pitch black box with a bunch of strangers, and, t- and put a brain sensor on your head. And they do it. And it's amazing. So... They go through this experience and they come out the other side. And when you arrive 15 or so minutes later, your data is downloaded off of the device and it is put onto a six foot tall mandala that's data visualizing all of the different brain data we just captured. And so what we're able to show you in that moment is each color that corresponds to different brainwave activity also corresponds to where you were along the labyrinth. So we can mm-hmm. say, when you were standing on grass, your brain was super relaxed. Mm-hmm. Did you know that like standing on grass does that for you? Wow. No, I, you know, well, maybe sometimes like when I'm in a park, I'm comfortable, but like, you know, you know, it's, I never really made that connection. Great. Where do you run every day when you run? Oh, I run on the West side highway or I run on a treadmill in the gym. Oh, maybe you might want to run in central park. You know, you're going to get a different experience. You're going to actually be able to be around these things that create that, that subtle shift in your, in your brain chemistry that let you feel more relaxed. And that idiosyncratic example gives us an opportunity to have a conversation about your foot is in dialogue with your brain and it's constantly sending signals that are affecting the way you encounter the world. And so if most people are just putting on a sock and a heavy shoe and clumping down the street, you know, running wherever they need to run, like this is going to enhance your experience. It's going to be more sensorial, not just for your foot, but for your whole body. And so now going back to those archetypes, you can see the convener 
showed up in the way we designed that entire experience, right? We could have mm. sat people in a focus group and told them that, but that wasn't going to do the same thing, right? Mm. We used the seeker to say, what's going to make people uncomfortable? What's going to push people out of their comfort zone so that they're in a place of, of wonder and learning and perhaps even a little anxiety around it, right? But like, that's that's going to be good. That's going to create some kind of circumstances where, where the story can be told. What kind of questions, inquirer, what kind of questions are they going to want to ask? How do we make sure that this lets them ask questions about themselves and the way their feet and their mind connect. The alchemist, this is this whole thing is an experiment, right? This whole thing is a prototype and it may or may not work, but we had a brave client who said, look, let's give it a shot. Let's see what happens. Let's experiment with people and see what experimentation yields. So you can start to see how each of the archetypes over time started yeah. to really get woven into the overall experience. Incredible. I love that example because what empathy allows us to do is create this sense of delight this sense of curiosity and wonder. And it pulls us out of like commercialism and manipulation of what people are doing with their money into this reminder of how wonderful it is to be human, you know, and how wonderful the design of our souls of our feet on. Yeah, it's in service to a larger, you know, brand situation, but it's such a delightful example of design. And I just love that story. Thanks. Yeah, no, it was, it was a super fun one to build. I bet. I bet. I would have been first in line for that kind of experience. <laughs> I love that stuff. I think it's just the coolest. So here's a question I have for you. How do you talk about or handle the issue of diversity? So for example, I recently heard that Beyonce had declined to work with an agency because there just weren't any people of color around the table. And her position was like, how the hell are you going to help me if there's nobody that looks like me sitting here? Are there limits to our empathy? Is there value in, yes, we can all get into that empathic, expansive state. But at the end of the day, we need people that reflect the target audience at the table. What's your, what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I think that it is undoubtedly important that we ensure that in all of our work, we are getting the right insight from the actual people we're trying to reach and connect with. Mm. Honestly, I had mixed opinions about Beyonce's thing. I think she had the right point, but if that happened with us, I think, you know, it would have been a different conversation because the people around the table are not going to be coming up with the answers in a vacuum. The people mm. around the table are going to be conducting research and talking with people and bringing those insights into the room. And yes, of course, should you have some diversity in the room? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, we don't need more old white men telling people what to do with their lives than, than, <laughs> than we already <laughs> have. But I do think that the people around the table aren't always the arbiters of everything. They should be the aggregators of things, right? And so mm. part of the work that we do is making sure that we're going out and having those conversations. In the last 18 months, there have been more assignments coming in our door for diversity, equity, and inclusion topics inside organizations who are realizing that the time to change is now. Yeah. And whether it's Black Lives Matter or the Me Too movement or anything else that's kind of happened to shake the tree of internal cultures of organizations, mm -hmm. but people are realizing that these changes need to need to occur and need to occur swiftly. Yeah, yeah, that's good to hear. It's an interesting and tricky conversation to have for sure. Yeah, I would also add, sorry, just one last thing because I'm yeah, excited please. about this topic. There is a third type of diversity that by no means should trump gender and 
racial diversity or ethnic diversity inside organizations. But there's a third type that we've been seeing more and more of a need for, and actually are running two programs right now with different companies to do this, and it's cognitive diversity. Mm. Because what starts to happen sometimes is your policies on recruitment will yield the right superficial differences of ethnic and gender diversity. So everyone looks different around the table, but did they all go to the same 10 schools and do they all read the same news sources? And do they like, and so like at the end of the day, like you might have people who look different, which is super important. Let me be ultra clear. And that is like job one. Right. But then let's also make sure that we're not just like fishing for different looking fish in the same pond and that we're actually looking for different ponds too. Yeah. Amen. I think that's a really important point to make. I love that. I love that. Really quick before I lose you, because I know I've only got a few minutes left. I want to talk a little bit about, it's kind of interesting, interwoven throughout the whole book is the story of your own personal journey spiritually and how a lot of this coalesced because of and in, in tandem with your own health problems. Can you just quickly tell the water cooler story? (laughs) Sure. So I started the business when I was 23. And from 23 to about 25, the business grew to 20, 30 people, something in that zone. I didn't really have a lot of support systems around me. I didn't have advisors, mentors, business partners who had done it before. And so I didn't really know how to cope with the stress of walking in every day and seeing 30 people whose livelihoods depended on my ability to generate revenue for the business and manage it appropriately. Mm. And so that stress would come home with me every night and it would come home to drugs and alcohol and whatever thing I could find to kind of salve that that stress that was bearing on me. Mm -hmm. And so one day I came in the office and I was changing the water cooler and just saw white. And the next thing I know, I opened my eyes and I was laying on the floor and the water coolers like glugging across me. And I had uh, ruptured a couple discs in my, in my lumbar spine and could barely walk and was taken to the hospital. And they said, we're going to put rods and pins in your back and you're going to have arthritic pain the rest of your life. But this is, this is what it is. You've got, you know, you're, you're, bone on bone. And I said, no, that sounds like a terrible idea. I'm 25 years old. And like, there's got to be another option for this. And they were like, there is no other option. This is what it is. And so I left the hospital without the surgery and began uh, on the recommendation of a friend visiting an acupuncturist. And the first question he asked me on the first day was, you know, what's your stress on a scale of one to 10? And I said, it's like a hundred. And he said, well, I don't think you have a back problem. I think your back problem is a result of stress problem. And how do you cope with stress? And then I told him all the negative ways I was doing that. And he said, okay, well, let's, let's get you on a different way of thinking about this. And it led me to Tai Chi. It led me to Qigong. It led me to a whole, you know, I went down the spiritual buffet line and tried everything. And I found certain things that I really loved and stuck with. Mm-hmm. And nine, 10 months later, my back pain was gone. And mm-hmm. has it come back since? It has in years after that, when I drifted too far out of center, when I wasn't paying attention to my body, when I wasn't taking care of myself again, my back was sort of the alarm bell mm-hmm. that I came to realize and learn was was my body's way of telling me, you need to take care of yourself. Yeah. I loved that part of the book because my, my own father had nine back surgeries, Michael, nine. Oof. And every time he went in, they did the same song and dance that you heard, which is, this is what's happening. You've got X and Y and Z, and this is your only choice. And he marched himself into surgery nine times, never once had any relief. 
the more people hear about back surgeries and how ineffective they end up becoming, why aren't more of us exploring this alternative path? Like what made you willing to be like, I'll try anything, stick some needles in me. I know my discs are bone on bone, but I'm going to see what this is all about. Why don't you think more people explore that? Right. Well, I think we, depending on the generation, I think that it's different. I think the younger generations today have learned that Western medicine, as amazing as it is and as important as it is in our, in our lives. And I have a great GP and I see my GP regularly and I get my blood tests and I do, you know, I I do all of those important things that you need to do that Western medicine's great at. Western medicine doesn't have every answer to every problem. Right. And I think that there are other generations that grew up saying that you go to your doctor and you listen to what your doctor tells you because the doctor knows more than you. And if we're building an awareness and a sense of empathy for ourself and are really listening to our bodies, the doctor is a, is an input to the round table of, of insight that you need to, to understand yourself, but it shouldn't be the, the, the dictator of it. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, what's so fascinating to me about this whole journey and and the book, you talk about this, is that yes, empathy takes a little longer sometimes and empathy for ourselves means we need to take some time, hit the pause button and, and support ourselves by whatever means we need. Ironically, even though that does take extra time, you somehow magically found time to run your business and also pick up a second side hustle, which is treating people in alternative medicine. (laughs) There's some sort of time bending that happens when empathy is really used as a spiritual practice, not just in your personal life, but professionally. What do you make of that paradox that the, that you're able to make more happen in 24 hours? I think that, you know, if I, boil it down to one experience or one lesson I learned. It was probably after about two years of practicing Tai Chi and Qigong with my Taoist master. And I said to Master Ru, look, I love this. It does great things for me, but I can't do it every day, Master Ru. I just, I don't have enough time. And he looked at me so matter-of-factly and he just said, wake up earlier. And he walked away and I was like, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I guess my guess he's right. And I should do that. And I run Sub Rosa from nine to six every day, but I see someone from eight to 9am and I see someone at 630 PM. And then I see people on Saturdays and mm-hmm. it has become a part of my life. And that ultimately is the same job with different tools, right? What we're doing is connecting with someone, working to understand them better helping to see where the block is that's standing in the way of them progressing into the next chapter of themselves or their best business or their leadership or their product or their health or their mindfulness or whatever it is. And then offering a set of solutions that don't solve their problem for them, but empower them to be the change maker for themselves. Amazing. That's amazing. It's beautiful. I so appreciate your time, Michael. Good luck today. May every interview be as fantastic as this one was, and I will look forward to talking to you soon. Okay. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Ah, such a good conversation. Makes you kind of want to rethink your approach to everything, doesn't it? (laughs) I keep thinking of new ways I could apply these ideas, especially in parenting. Anyway, if you would like a recap of some of the key ideas we discussed here, I include show notes and links to key resources and all kinds of good stuff in my newsletter that I send out uh, around the same time as the podcast goes live. Just head over to bronwyncommunications.com. That's B-R-O-N-W-Y-N 
communications.com and sign up for my newsletter. I make sure everything is covered in a really easy sort of grab and go format so that you can find the information you need when you need it easily. And just for fun, I also include a list of my current obsessions. It's articles that might be blowing my mind this week or new music I've discovered or just cool things that I've found. And it's all in there. And it's my little gift to you for being such a devoted listener. And as always, thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your time with me. Shine on, you crazy diamonds. I'll see you next time.